0: Welcome to the
1: New Books Network. So we're going to get started. Um, I'm here today. Uh, My name is Claire Iwasaki. I'm a host with the Chinese Studies uh, New Books Network channel. Um, And I'm here with uh, Carlos Piocos, who's a professor in the literature department at De La Salle University. Um, He's published widely on gender and transnationalism. Um, in a number of international peer-reviewed journals. And his monograph, which we're talking about today, um, Narratives, Affect and Politics of Southeast Asian Migration, was published by Rutledge in 2021. Um, he's also edited and translated um, a collection of Indonesian migrant women's fiction from Bahasa Indonesia to Filipino, and he received his PhD in comparative literature from Hong Kong University. Um, so. Carlos, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Clara.
1: Um, so I guess just to get us started, um, can you talk a little bit about what led you to this book project? How did you become interested um, in, this, in this topic?
0: So this book is actually based on my dissertation. Um, uh, but uh, initially, when I was uh, proposing for my research project for my um PhD I have a completely different project it's supposed to be about um Southeast Asian speculative fiction and and nationalism so, uh that's how different the whole project uh, took shape uh, because of my encounter and immersion with uh migrant Filipinos in Hong Kong while I was there so um and particularly when they get to introduce me to, uh, also the Indonesian migrant community, Hong Kong, where I stumbled into, uh, materials, uh, uh, writings of Indonesian migrant women workers. So it got me into thinking about, uh, looking at their works first, uh, and reflecting on some of my experiences working with these migrant women into Communities. And I guess it led into that uh, I began to uh, seriously consider um, taking uh, and studying uh, Bahasa Indonesia uh, while I was doing my uh, PhD dissertation, uh, enrolling in some classes, uh, and then um, led me into looking at materials. Uh, uh, that reflects on uh, Filipino experiences in migration, and uh, I, I, I guess it led into this project wherein I try to archive all of these cultural materials and try to make sense of them, um, and looking at them from a perspective um, that would allow me to. Uh, uh, have a sort of comparative examination of uh, uh, their experiences and how they articulate it through through an emerging cultural production called migration. So it also um, made me ask about uh, what kinds of texts or what kinds of literatures and cultural production are uh, being examined in uh, researches in humanities. And. Was wondering how much of uh, this kind of study would contribute to that, given that uh, we are looking at uh, writers, or women writers, who are not part of the canon, or even not part of uh, the kinds of texts that we usually look into when we talk about uh, diaspora migration. So, this uh, all of these questions led me into looking at this uh, project and pursuing it as a as my dissertation and then later on transforming it into this book that we're talking, right talking about right now.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. I really like, um, you know, I, I like all of it, obviously, but I, I like the point about canonicity, right? This idea that, you know, this stuff exists and, and yet somehow we don't it's never really talked about that much. Um, okay, so, you know, as, as you mentioned, right, this book does emerge out of a dissertation project. Um, you know, at some point, I'd love to read that original dissertation project, but maybe you're over that. Um, but I, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what are some of the challenges, you know, that you faced in, in converting a dissertation project to a book?
0: I think the uh, the most significant challenge for me was, um. Uh, going back to the dissertation and looking at the um amount of uh, uh changes in the political landscape that happened uh when I uh, after I defended the dissertation and uh, 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 before I was and uh, after I defended the dissertation and then the, the two, three or four years that I got a book contract and I, was, I would have to revisit the manuscript and rewrite it again because there are several political changes that happened in the Philippines uh, as well that are very relevant to uh, the way I framed uh, some of the uh, discussions in the chapters, uh, particularly with uh, um, uh, basing some assumptions with... Uh, uh, social media responses, because many of the narrative... I start the chapters at the outset with narratives about how popular sentiments gets to be... It uh, gets to reflect some of the contradictions that I was trying to explain in each of the chapters in terms of policies, in terms of the experiences of migrant mm-hmm. women themselves in the writing. Uh, it is a challenge because of um how... uh. Uh, particularly how uh, how those social media responses have been distorted in the past few years because of uh, this whole the, the politics of disinformation uh, and this what they're calling us a, a post truth uh, era and a lot of the uh, Filipino migrants have been uh, active agents of that so uh, what's interesting for me uh, looking back at my experiences when I was doing my dissertation was the year that uh, my last few months in Hong Kong was the early 2016, which is the uh, uh, early months of campaign period for the last national election where a very popular uh, president came about. And I, I, I witnessed that kind of change among some of the people I immersed with, because um, I saw how popular uh, our president was, uh, our outgoing president, uh, outgoing president was back then in Hong Kong, and um, and a lot of those uh, popularity came from uh, very distorted ideas uh, spread in the internet. So when I was revisiting the text, and when I was, I. And I have to reframe and revise all 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 of the things that that refer to um, social media responses and responses in uh, uh, internet that refers to some of the experiences of migrant workers because of that politics. And I begin to question as well some of the ways that I assume how. influential certain discourses are and uh, and i i think that is the most challenging uh, challenging uh, issue for me but uh um I, I i i i just have to confront that problem and then try to go back to what really is the core uh, and the primary text that i'm looking at and it's, it's still the texts that are generated by my uh, by migrant women. so um yeah it it uh, that's uh, one of the challenges and i guess uh, that also uh, dovetails to another challenge which is uh, looking at how much of the materials needs to be updated how much of these discourses that i put out have all also have changed in the past uh, few years so yeah i, I think uh there are many uh many parts of it are rewritten uh, it's uh it's not completely different from the dissertation but a substantial part of it was changed and revised and rewritten uh, to become the book that it is now
1: yeah that's a i mean such a rich answer um i mean it is i think it really highlights in a lot of ways right the um kind of challenges of doing something that is so timely, right? That, that if you are doing something so timely, then it, it, it's kind of a moving target and and this does need to, you know, you need to put in a lot more work than, you know um, I I work on a lot of people who are dead. So there's not that much going, you know, there may be some changes, but you know, it is not quite so, so lively, right. You cannot, you don't have to make so many changes. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I really appreciated that. Um, Okay. So, you know, I think I'm going to move to talking about the framing of your book, which is the effective turn. Right. And um, this is kind of the, the overall, if I understand this correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, this is kind of the framework of the book, right? The way that you kind of organize um, all of the many chapters of the book. Um, so how did you kind of come to this framing? You know, uh, was this something that was present in the dissertation? Was this something that kind of you you came about after? How did, how did that come about?
0: The affective turn uh, or um, the idea that uh, affect and emotions sort of influence a lot of the ways in which we think about, and understand and interpret these experiences and how it sort of influence or, uh, re, uh, uh sort of re- reinforce some of the problematic discourses of migration. I've got that from, um, uh, from reading the text, from reading the text and also viewing the films, watching so Because most of the time, uh, some of the ways in which these texts become powerful is because of the way they marshal affects, particularly in the case of uh, uh, narratives about Filipino migration. A lot of these stories, a lot of these films sort of narrate this experience of sacrifice. So, and most of the time, the way sacrifice is taken uh, and to mean something is always. Uh, towards positive, in, in a positive sense, it's always in a positive light. So um, uh, some of the uh, some of these films operate and work successfully precisely because it draws power from that uh, positivity and even heroicness of uh, heroism of how we frame that kind of experience as sacrifice. So I think looking at that, uh, Uh, to be able to talk about sacrifice uh, uh, more effectively and more easily, you have to look into uh, not just all all of those cultural um, and textual um, uh, meanings that are uh, under uh, impinged on that term, but also on how uh, it becomes an effective force that makes the film powerful. So, Whenever I encounter those kinds of affects, I think um, what's uh, what's interesting for me is that most of the time uh, people don't problematize them. Uh, even scholars of migration don't problematize this term uh, and just take it for what it is. Uh, so I think to be able to uh, problematize these ideas, you have to go through those concepts of affect and how. Affect and emotions are able to sustain this kind and even resolve some of these contradictions. So, for example, why is it uh, in many of these stories why is it uh, um, considered that role to be overextending yourself too much, as if it's a positive thing? And how it, and why is it that only women <laughs> are carry, carrying that burden? So they don't uh, in most of these films don't really. Uh, problematize it. So I think to be able to uh, find those contradictions, find the ways in which uh, these films and these texts tries to resolve these contradictions are important. And the only way to do that is to look around, go around this, uh, all of the effective terms that uh, uh, floats and sustains these ideas.
1: Yeah, that's uh, I think what I can't really ask for a better lead in to talking about some of these chapters. Um, and the the chapters are really rich. So let's do it. Um, so, you know, for the first chapter, right, uh, you kind of contrast, you know, two films, and then um, some other kind of works of cultural production, a photographer, right. And then um, some other things. So, you know, I'm, the framing of the chapter, as I understand it, right is, is looking at this kind of uneasy relationship between um, hospitality and being at home and between intimacy and labor, right In the through the kind of representations um, re- representations of and representations by um, Filipina migrant workers. Right. So can you can you talk about how you came to this particular framing for the chapter? And um, particularly, you know, one of the other threads that you you talk about is this kind of idea of guest and host when when a worker is um, the guest and when she's the host. And so I I really I really love this chapter. I I really would like to hear you talk more about this.
0: Yeah, uh, this is one of the chapters that I really, really enjoyed. Writing and even rewriting because um, uh, I completely changed this from my dissertation and I was able to update it by using the uh, photography of uh, Sai Satakani. He's a uh, really, really lovely short story written by Susi Otomo, an Indonesian domestic worker in And then uh, I was able to up, uh, I think in the dissertation, I, I only discussed Ilo, Ilo and uh, another film. I was able to update this, uh, this chapter when I came back for research, uh, two years after I, I finished my PhD in Hong Kong. And while I was, uh, uh, interviewing, uh, uh, migrant women workers there, I saw this, uh, new film that is being, uh, advertised in, uh, advertised in the city and it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's a new film that is very similar to Ili, a Singaporean independent film. So I was able to, uh, that's how this chapter came about. And, um, in the Philippines, uh, what's interesting is that we have this, uh, so, uh, uh, weekly feature shows in which, uh, sometimes, uh, migrant women workers, migrant women are sort of, uh, they have these really interesting bits about the life of this migrant worker who became successful abroad, who was loved by their employers. That's why they went home or they were able to, the whole family were able to live in Saudi, or they were able to live in France because of how much their employers loved. And we, from time to time, we get these kinds of stories. And, we, uh, and these stories are powerful precisely because... Uh, uh, they sort of uh, they sort of frame as heart-touching. And at the same time, uh, it's a good um, feature story that says that uh, uh, if you are determined and if you do your uh, job well, uh, that means if you love the family that you're working with, then you will have this kind of story. So we get those stories a lot. That's why when Iloilo Ilo came out, it became... Uh, 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 such a powerful film, and in fact, uh, some of the mainstream films here were able to uh, interview, uh, the director and found uh, find the woman, uh, the real life woman where that story was based in uh, Iloilo, a province here. Is. So it, it it is a powerful story, and I think the reason why it's so powerful is that because it tries to use this notion of becoming a family uh, that seems to be some sort of uh, I'm not I'm not saying that it doesn't happen but it's sort of like a a, a fantasy constructed to uh, uh, make you think about how uh, this kind of labor can work in this kind of economy. So I'm very interested in these kinds of stories, precisely because they they are problematic, and but they are also very powerful because uh, they allow you to think about how you can gain a sense of belonging even though you can be perpetual guests because you'll never become a citizen or a permanent resident in uh, most of these countries that uh, allow you to work there uh, because. Because of the job that you are doing, precisely because you are a domestic worker, a foreign domestic worker, if you are working in other industries, then you could get a work visa and that would give you a pathway to uh, citizenship or residency if it were any other job. But because it is this uniquely specific job that you are only hired to become sort of a proto-family a supplementary family, but you'll never be part of the family, is uh, I think what what I find really interesting in these kinds of setup and that gets to be narrated in these films and in these stories. That's why I look at this theme uh, that cuts across these uh, two films and photography project and this, this short story, and uh, I try to problematize it, and I think the the uh the nearest uh the easy, not, not the easiest, but I I think the guest also relationship, the idea of hospitality has been the uh been very helpful in uh in helping me identify some of the things that I find problematic in these stories. But also some of the things that I also find very powerful and very convincing if you a a viewer of these films or either of these short stories, um, the photography book is about uh, uh, the photographer's life and also, in extension, her mother and her mother's employer's life, because because they ended up really becoming close. Now, what I find very interesting in the short story that I've discussed in this chapter is that uh, what. The author did here is he, uh, uh, use the point of view of her employer, uh, or, or the figure, the point of view of the employer, talk about the uh, the domestic worker, uh, which I find a very interesting strategy for the writer because it takes sort of a reversal, uh, sort of a disidentification that uh, that creative writing and fiction allows. So. Uh, that's how I tried to thread these three texts together. And I was really hoping uh, to be able to uh, bring out and expose some of the ways that make this idea of uh, uh, of belonging and alienage uh, a sort of part of a continuum that sustains these kinds of stories.
1: Yeah, that's a really great, I mean, I I found this to just be such an interesting chapter. I, you know, I liked all of the chapters, but I, I found this just to be such an ambitious chapter, right? I mean, you're, you're really doing a lot with like different kinds of me- media, and that's also challenging, right? And then to find this kind of through line through, you know, what is, you know, a Singaporean Chinese, right, kind of representation of this, and then you know, a street photographer and a, a an author, like a, an author who is herself a migrant worker, right? Like that is, you know, I feel like you make it look easy, right? You make it feel like we, these things kind of naturally emerge. And yet, you know, it, it's just such a, you know, I, I just found it to be such a rich chapter. And I, I hope some of the listeners will check this out because it really is pretty great, um, in my opinion. So I guess let's move on to, to chapter two. Oh, totally my pleasure and totally genuine. Like, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so for, for chapter two, right, you, you're talking here about some concepts that are, are congruent to shame, right, um, but not entirely shame, right? And you kind of uh, talk about these in terms of um, the terms, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but malu and hia, um, yeah, as, as things that you in fact don't, speaking of translation, right, you don't translate that. Um, you you let it kind of sit in the in the text um, as as a kind of separate term, and so you know in this particular um, chapter, right? This chapter is organized around you know romantic and sexual relations, um, migrant worker bad romances, you know, and I- ideas of of yeah, romance or uh, you know sort of sexual relationships that are kind of. Um, maybe straying outside of the bounds of of certain things, as well as as queerness, right? And queer relationships. Um, So I'm just kind of curious, you know, how you decided to frame this this way? How did you, you know, why did you organize this chapter in this way? And and can we hear a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, thank you very much. I think uh, among all of the chapters, this one is uh, the new chapter from the dissertation. This is completely uh, new from the dissertation. it talks about shame, uh, Malu and Hia are vernaculars, vernacular words for shame in Filipino and Indonesian context. So, and I have to be most careful about this chapter because I didn't want to, uh, partly because talking about sexuality in both of these national contexts are, and especially uh, related to uh, the uh, subjects of the previous, are uh, pretty much um, a sensitive topic uh uh considering uh how much uh even with different uh, religious backgrounds these two countries are very also very conservative and also because i i think it's tra- uh while um while there are certainly a lot of religious discourses that sustains uh, this, uh that Has to be explored in this chapter. I think, uh, that's one of also, uh, some of the blind sides of this chapter. I wasn't able to extend my discussion to, um, uh, to talk about Catholicism and Islam religion in terms of, uh, notions of morality and sexuality, which I, I find is also for the project is no longer part of its purview. And I think something that can be explored further in other studies. But uh, what I'm trying to do here is look at how uh, shame as it relates to the experience of mobility and why so many of these stories, especially when they talk about finding love or uh, when they talk about sexual desires, uh, whether it's uh, interracial sexual desires or or, uh, homosexual or uh, same-sex relationship, uh, they are framed uh, with uh, frame or they they are framed by this term of malu or shame in Indonesian context or hia, uh, Filipino context and uh, even when they're talking about I uh, think uh one of the things uh, one of the chapters that I also have been uh um uh very sensitive and very careful about articulating in this uh, chapter is how. Uh, migrant women frame the uh, experience or venturing out into sex. Because a lot of the stories also talks about that, which I find also very interesting and uh, pretty much underexplored in many of the uh, scholarship of women's migration. And there seems to be a continuity, an interesting continuity with how they discuss the uh or uh, uh, and how some of these stories are uh are uh are framed within that same same sexual work of uh domestic work and sex work so uh i think shame here is a very powerful uh, affect uh, i think this is something that could be explored further and there are interesting connections with the way Filipinos feel shame to uh, the language of Hiya and Malu uh, in Indonesian context, but there are also uh, specificities with how the experiences uh, uh why how they express and respond to shame. Um, the most interesting uh, and the most uh, uh, the most interesting chapter the part here in this chapter is the discussion of same sex desires and the relationship. So, uh, I ha- I have there were several stories I have to choose, and I I was able to choose I think the most the most engaging ones, uh, the ones that talk about shame in both of its moralizing sense and shame in its more ambiguous, ambivalent, and more progressive stances in the fiction, so, and films. So yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I think this chapter is definitely a chapter that I enjoyed writing.
1: Yeah, I I really enjoyed it, you know, in certain ways, you know, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I think it is valuable because, you know, as you were just saying about that first chapter, right, the, the domestic worker is often kind of bounded by this idea of being like a surrogate mother or a surrogate caretaker, right? And that's something in which, you know, often sexuality is absent, right? You're not supposed to have it, right? You're just supposed to be there to care for people. And so, you know, in, in many ways, it kind of comes out of those things that are bounded by that framework that you kind of introduce in the first chapter, right? It's the, all of these other things that are happening, right? All of these other desires for connection or, you know, sort of necessity, you know, that you have to like make connections outside of this particular work site. Um, You know, all of those things are kind of like in the second chapter, which I, you know, I really found to be also really interesting. And, you know, I, I kind of agree with you in my, you know, the times that I've seen films about domestic workers, that idea is almost always never there, you know, or if it is, it's kind of seen as disruptive. So, okay, let's move on to the third chapter. Um, And so this really looks at um, issues of, of vulnerability, right. And kind of precarity. Um, And I, you know, I was really, again, interested in, in how you organize the text to kind of allow this theme to emerge um, from it. And then particularly um this sort of secondary question, this was a sort of smaller point within the chapter, but I, I was just so fascinated by is this kind of idea of taking back time, right the 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 sort of concept of taking back time through writing, right the act of writing as a kind of, you know in and of itself a somewhat rebellious or you know kind of selfish, not in a negative sense, but for the self, right um, kind of activity. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. Um- <clears throat> chapter three is also in response to some of the assumptions that uh, the fiction written by domestic uh, uh, workers, uh, migrant women, and the films that are about them are are, are only just victim stories. So, uh, so in the third chapter, I talk about ideas of victimization, ideas of vulnerability. And I deliberately uh, put this in the middle of the book because I think that's... Uh, uh, because I wanted to problematize what it means to feel, um, what it means to feel saturated. What it really means to to feel saturated and feel that uh, to have that uh, feeling of oversaturation of victimization when we encounter stories about marginalized subjects, about marginalized speaking subjects. So. Um, talk about the ideas of vulnerability here and how uh, Indonesian migrant women who are also writing are trying to, to uh, reflect on experiences of vulnerability. And uh, I, I think implicit in that discussion is that fact that these women are writing. So in a way, they're also negotiating what it means to be able to tell that story. What it means to be able to overcome uh, that experience of, uh, of suffering, that experience of victimization, and have to be able to negotiate your vulnerability and precarity to be able to write about it, so that it uh, writing in itself here offers them a space, uh, offers them a space to to reflect on those experiences, and that would allow. A much richer understanding on the kinds of subjectivity that will emerge in that, uh, and and that the, the act of writing. Uh, most of the time, um, uh, even among uh, Indonesian scholars, they don't really, uh, and among Indonesian literary, literati, uh, they don't really uh, uh, recognize some of the aesthetics of uh these forms of fiction until uh what i was trying my best not to do here is just uh look at this and read this work uh, in their ethnographic value so i was trying to look at what sort of aesthetics that might come out of uh that space of writing that is attached to their subjectivity and that's why the notion of vulnerability and agency Uh, And all of the emotions that are attached to it are very important in uh, the way I try to discuss this chapter, because in many ways, I'm also talking about writing writing from the point of, or from the position of marginalization uh, in this particular chapter. Of course, along the way, I have to discuss the structures that make, and all of these policies that make them vulnerable, that victimizes them, that victimize them, but at the uh, at the end of the day I was trying to also look at that uh, and find it, um, uh, find a vocabulary of uh, aesthetics that could describe uh, why they are writing and to what end uh, are their writings about.
1: I really liked that I I, I think I I see what you mean. In my own teaching, sometimes I try to incorporate, um, you know, works by or about migrant workers. Uh, You know, I teach things on Taiwan and things on Hong Kong, and they're a very important part. But I have, you know, in trying to find material often found that it is very victim. You know, the characters are often very abject, or they, you know, they, they are just kind of like they're victimized. That's kind of it. And I I find that to be kind of unsatisfying, both as a, you know, reader or consumer, you know, a watcher of these things, but also as a teacher, because like, what, what are we getting out of this exactly? Right. So I, I do find your kind of ethical considerations, you know, really, really, you know, I, I certainly sympathize with that. And I also think like, you do a lot more than that, right? I mean, you do a lot more than that, in, not only in terms of allowing them, you know, to kind of, allowing is maybe not the right word, reading them, right? Not just in terms of like, well, this is what they say. Although a lot of those stories are from like an eye, you know, a kind of personal perspective or a perspective that's strongly identified with the author. So that's very tempting to do. Um, but then also, you know, allowing for aesthetics, right? Which I think when it's something that it seems sort of like you know amateur or naive you know this kind of idea of the amateur writer it's not literary enough right which is in and of itself is such a destructive category um you know so what's literary enough <laughs> and that that is so like gatekeepery right for for lack of a better word than like yeah i know i i found that to just be so powerful right this idea of allowing you know aesthetics to emerge and and to to talk about that on its own terms right I, I did find that to be just a very um sort of something to a potential model right for other literary scholars who are looking at this um you know not to succumb to i think some of the things that are sometimes built into our training to be slightly patronizing um that, and, and that's not necessarily our intention but that's often kind of how we are trained is to is to kind of uh, emphasize the avant-garde and things like that. So yeah, I really found this to be um, a really another chapter that I got a lot out of and, and learned a lot from. So I, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your comments here that really speak to to a lot of that.
0: What also, uh, I, I was also reminded when uh, while when you were talking about teaching uh, uh, non-Western and non-white uh, Literature is that most of the time we have this tendency of looking at or just trying to draw out all of these uh, social justice themes because they seem to be relegated uh, as readings for that. So uh, I I remember uh, what one of the things that I'm doing when I'm teaching Carlos Bulosan's America Is in the Heart, for example, is that um, I make them read just the second part, for example, and I ask them to sort of just. Uh, Trace all of the places that Carlos Bulosan went all over California and then Seattle. So they were just doing that on uh, Google Map, for example, and then um, I make them think about what it w- what it means to write from uh, from this kind of subjectivity in which the uh, the, the main guy, the protagonist, or uh, Carlos Bulosan travels the half of the. America by uh, riding these cargo trains, uh, trying to escape the police, uh, uh, chasing them. What kind of subjectivity uh, does that entail for this kind of writer? Just imagine yourself uh, from this uh, place. Uh, so, you're, for example, uh, the students are uh, sort of just used to traveling uh by a more convenient means and then imagine this person look at the map and look at the places that he's been and just trying to uh, uh as just a steerage passenger stowaway passenger so that sort that is also uh that gives you a sense of what writing means what aesthetics mean for this particular author that sort of also displays us. Uh, what do you know about how good memoir is written or how uh, good fictions or good novels or good books are written?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, this is, I don't know why I thought this, but, you know, writing in a freight car, especially in the northern part of the West Coast, right, it gets really cold. I mean, it's cold already because you're going very fast, but it's also just like, you know, what what is that like when, you know, even if it's a bus and it's late, right, a bus is usually heated, you know, there are lots of people, right, all of these things. Yeah, it's very, I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, right, and to kind of incorporate into right, students learning and and ideas of aesthetics and all of that. So yeah, I think that's a, that's just such a great, that's such a great point. Okay, um, let's see. So let's move on to chapter four. Um, and so in chapter four, right, you, you are talking about but, you know, and I think really complicating ideas of this kind of, if in my understanding, sort of prevalent image of the the overseas worker as the like the returning hero, and then you know also in ter- not only in terms of this idea of the the worker herself, usually herself as the returning hero, but um, the idea of the box, right, the the balik balik bayan box that like returns um, in her place sometimes, so. Um and you you framed this in terms of like cool optimism, right, and the kind of kind of um, the berlant term. So I'm, I'm curious, like how did you come to that framing? You know, uh, what other thoughts did you have you know in, in relation to this this chapter?
0: I, w- I was actually just looking for a way to problematize uh, sacrifice and just look at it from a perspective wherein we can actually challenge all, all that makes it, optimistic in a way but still retain that hope because there's always a sense of hope and why and how uh, these uh, migrants travel and uh, return. So I was trying to look for in a critical vocabulary to be able to uh, uh, reconstruct how we can think of and frame Sacrifice and I find cruel optimism uh, uh, very compelling because uh, i won't say it, it is uh, it one hundred percent applies to everything but i f- find uh thinking about sacrifice as a form of cruel cruel optimism already a provocation in itself be- just because of how optimistic and how positive sacrifice has always been read and interpreted in uh the public sphere in Philippine public sphere. So that's uh that's why I was uh, uh I would think of this kind of relationship as well optimism only because um uh the reason why most migrant women or migrant Filipinos go abroad is to find a better job. But at the same time um that intimacy to that promise also is uh uh one thing that's also um uh that, that intimacy to the promise also as it, it presents and reveals and exposes some of the limits of what they're doing and what uh uh and the kinds of economic relations that they produce because of those uh yeah because of their journeys. So I'm looking at this uh Sense of economic dependence. I'm looking at this in sense of unsustainability, but mostly I'm looking at this as a form of uh, hope, as a form of hope that is not sustainable. So, um, and that might, uh, in the end, be more debilitating rather than uh, liberating for many of uh, many of the subjects. So. And the Filipinos, many Filipinos and Indonesians think of this as a way to um, to be uh, intimate to the promise of a good life. So, um, so what I try to do here, aside from reading that, is look at how women in these films and these narratives and these stories were also uh, trying to create a different sense of hope away from what they thought was what would bring them good life. So uh, how they respond to once they realize that the kind of hope that they're pinning on is already unsustainable. So that's sort of uh, what I hope is an extension to what Berlant is saying. Because I think in many ways, people are capable of uh, creating alternative hopes within, uh, within this sphere of cruel optimisms. We live in. So even just pockets of, uh, pockets of alternative imagination of what the future may bring. So, uh, not just these cyclical notions of, uh, cyclical notions of failed promises. So for example, uh, one character here, uh, after realizing that all hope was gone, she was able to just find a bit of relief in uh, staking some of her income or staking some of her savings in this uh, makeshift laundromat. And I think it's no longer connected to the failed promise of migration. It's sort of trying to come up with new alternative imaginaries of hope. So I think framing it as cruel optimism is very important, uh, discursively. But at the same time, looking at how the text tries to, uh, or the films here tries to uh, conjure a different sense of optimism is also an important part of this chapter.
1: It's a really, I think, a really nice point. Um, I really, I, I got a lot out of the framing, you know, of this. And I, I'm i also kind of curious, you know, um, just to kind of follow up on something. So, you know, I, I like this idea of like un- unsustainability, right? This idea that these are, you, you put it so well, I think this idea of these kind of like, I think you said like failed cycles, right? This just kind of idea that if you keep doing it, it will, you know, you can just kind of keep doing it. Um, and I, I am kind of curious, like how, you know, how did you decide to kind of look at both the the people, right? Who are kind of engaging in these cycles and then the people who are receiving, you know, some of the fruits of, of their labor, you know, how did you decide to put them together in this chapter? You know, I I get the sense that both of them are kind of subject to these ideas of, of expectation and failed hope, you know, and then kind of a re reviving of that. But I'm kind of curious how you decided to put these two things that from an outsider, they seem somewhat, you know, potentially unrelated. And then you kind of weave them together really nicely. You know, how, how did you decide to do that? I guess also looking at
0: these narratives and how, uh, there's really no um, uh, way of separating at least in the economy of uh, remittances, in the economy of migration economy of remittances how uh, the person who leave and the person who are left behind are completely bounded together by this uh, by this kind of cruel uh, cruel optimistic uh, relationship of this uh, economy of remittances. So it's hard to separate them and, um, uh, and only because you, uh, only because they're part of the structure and, uh, to separate them would mean, or thinking about solutions, for example, say, because the, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of the ways this is being discussed, for example, it's a form of solution is, for example, uh, we can, we can teach, uh, Migrant domestic workers while they are still abroad, to, with courses of financial literacy so that they know how to so- save money, or we can tell the family that they, uh, they have to be financially more independent, uh, and they have to find a ways, so, uh, find more resources aside from their migrant families. So, those are kinds of band aid solutions and uh, because if we disentangle this kind of relationship, if we disentangle the, uh, the people who are leaving and the ones they left behind, uh, we'll be, we'll just be able to imagine all of these uh, temporary solutions. But if we look at them as, um, as part, as entangled in this process, entangled in this kind of relationship, um, th- that's probably a one way of uh, moving forward with how to think about, uh, this, uh, problem. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for that. That was a really great, was a really great way of tying that together. Okay. So we're coming, um, coming up on the final chapter, which is chapter five. Um, and this is another chapter that I really, I don't know if enjoy is the right word because it, the, the subject matter can be very grim, right? But it, I found it to be a very powerful chapter, right? And you close this with a discussion of a number of legal cases, right? Um, Some of them uh, perhaps successful and some of them unsuccessful, but all of them, you know, kind of addressing pretty serious, um, kind of serious issues. And then, you know, kind of framing these stories or these, these legal cases in terms of commemoration and mourning, Right, so I guess I'm just sort of curious, you know, how you then connect this to the literary works that you discuss, um, and kind of more broadly, why do you you choose to end the book on this kind of topic?
0: Uh, um, a lot of uh, a lot of the people from my generation, actually, and uh, in the Philippines, um, uh, one of the uh, sort of one of the uh, most important historical event that uh, inaugurated all of these discourses about uh filipino uh, filipinos in diaspora particularly of migrant workers is uh the death of uh, of a filipina in the is floor contemplation so that was a very big uh historical event and that dovetailed into many of the ways in which we are framing how to talk about uh, how to talk about migration, nationalism, and how and all of the cultural representations of diaspora in the Philippines. So, in many ways, uh, when we talk about uh, politics of migration, in at least in the Philippine context, we're talking about death. We're we're already mourning. So. I think in many ways the um uh, this uh this aspect of the uh, of the book is very important as it tries to reckon with all of these discussions all of these politics that has happened uh uh more than uh, I think uh, uh more than 30 years ago already uh so um and uh it's sort of a way to understand um. Uh, um. How many of these discussions have been progressing into, and um, uh, I like that it. I, I tried to end it in this chapter because I also wanted to, to not just talk about the nationalist framework of migration because that is how most of uh Filipino scholars particularly frame migration as sort of uh it. Only becomes progressive when connected to nationalist agenda or, or nationalist progressive agenda, and I think more than that, what we're seeing in the past few uh, years, uh, past few decades, is that um, uh, Filipino migrants are are also uh, from because of their mobility, because of their movements, have also started gaining grounds in solidarity work right. and gaining grounds with the so- social movements trying to reach out to other nationalities particularly with indonesians so even as i was trying to discuss the whole book the similarities and para- parallelism of the experiences of indonesians and filipinos i think in the last part this is where i was trying to tie them and just to discuss how in many ways not just their fates are tied but uh, also their movement and, uh, uh, the social movements can only gain more ground in the future via this transnational solidarity. So, uh, and what we are seeing in these legal cases is that there, uh, there are transnational solidarity being imagined by both Indonesians and migrant women. And the way they imagine this is also reflected in in richer ways in this fiction and film. So I I wanted to end it it that way to talk about also the activism, the transnational grassroots activism happening not just in Indonesia and the Philippines but also in Singapore and in Hong Kong and hopefully in other spaces where there are also Southeast Asian migrants.
1: So really... I think a really powerful statement and I think something that you do really persuasively here. Um, you know, I, I really did find this to be a a powerful way to end a book. Um, especially, you know, when you're writing a book, you, you basically just kind of want to be done. So I, I appreciate the, you know, I mean, I appreciate this kind of, you know, really meaningful way to structure this book. Right. I I found it to be really intentional and, and for that reason, like very powerful. Um, so thank you. You know we're we've taken up a lot of your time. I know it's getting probably pretty late where you are, um, but I I did just kind of want to make sure. You know, is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we didn't have a chance to get to? Obviously, for the listeners, we're only scratching the, the very, very, very you know surface of this book. You should definitely read it. Um, you know, there's a lot more here than we've been able to talk about in an hour. Or so uh but in in case there is something very important that i haven't gotten to is there something you wanted to talk about i, I think
0: we've pretty much covered everything uh, uh going to uh chapters one by one and i was actually able to rearticulate some of the things that i uh i was thinking because sometimes right after you finish the book uh, and after uh it went to production stage you don't you no longer want to think about it <laughs> So uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing this is uh, also uh, uh, our conversation has also sort of sparked uh, some of my some of the ways I, I, I was uh, uh, thinking about that book in uh, each of those chapters. So thank you very much. That's,
1: that's so great. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely, having completed a book recently also, really relate to uh, in that post-production period, never wanted, you know, I mean, you come back around eventually, obviously, because you love it. But, you know, at the time, just thinking, oh, i I never, you know, if I never think about this, I, I never, I never, I would be happy, you know. Um, but yes, I, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to overcome this um, for this interview, because I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I guess the final question, um, and I think a sort of traditional question for the New Books Network is, you know, what are you working on now? What can we expect for you from you in the future? No, um what are you working on I'm planning
0: to go back to writing poetry so after writing <laughs> critical essays uh, I, I wish I could have uh, uh, time to write poetry and I was uh, planning to do some research for it because I'm planning to write about um, the former military bases where i was where, when I was growing up, so I plan to sort of write a, a a suite of personal poems that are based of me growing growing up uh um uh growing up near a subic military bases. so uh yeah that's sort of uh in in the works so i hopefully i'll be able to finish it in the next two years so it's probably uh the the next book that i'll be working on and then um I'm also, I'm working with another scholar and, uh, what we're doing is we're interviewing, uh, migrant grassroots, uh, activists to, um, and, and to help them. Uh, we're helping an organization that I worked with back when I was Hong Kong, a large part of the network they have are also migrant activists from other countries. So. Uh, me and another scholar interviewing, uh, seasoned, uh, activists in various places, Filipinos, and and trying to sort of, uh, rewrite their stories, uh, based from that interview. And hopefully it will come out as a book in one or two years. But yeah, um, the next few books might not be as, uh, traditionally scholarly. But it would also take some research powers <laughs> sort of research effort to be able to uh to finish them. So but I probably won't write another monograph for <laughs> another few years.
1: I think that's pretty fair. I mean both of those projects though do sound really fascinating. So hopefully, you know, we will have you back on at some point to to talk about these things. But, you know, in the meantime you know, there's, I think there's a lot there. I, you know, I hope at some point we can expect another monograph from you, but at the same time, you're doing a bunch of other things. So I hope you can also have some time to devote to a number of other things that interest you, which I think are quite a lot. I didn't put in your biography that you're also a poet in your own right, but you absolutely are and you're going to do it. So, um, you know, thank you so much. Um, you know, for taking the time to speak with me. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I hope to have another one at some point, you know, on one of these other projects in the future. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Clara. Nice Nice talking to you again.